Welcome to the Insights at ACR 2020 series, brought to you by the Cytokine Signaling Forum, where authors reviewed their Congress posters and presentations on cytokine signaling and JAK inhibitors. My name is Professor Chris Edwards from the University Hospital Southampton in the UK. This edition looks at JAK inhibitors beyond the treatment realm of RA and features presentations from Professors Ian McInnes, Xenophon Baraliakos and Maya Butch. The first two presentations are from CSF Steering Committee Chair Professor Ian McInnes and focus on upadacitinib in psoriatic arthritis. In the first presentation, he analyzes the efficacy and safety of upadacitinib versus placebo and adalimumab. Well, hello, my name is Ian McInnes. I'm the Muirhead Professor of Medicine and the Versus Arthritis Professor of Rheumatology at the University of Glasgow. And it's a real pleasure for me to tell you about this phase three clinical trial, the SELECT PSA1 study, uh, in which the efficacy and safety of apatacitinib was compared to placebo and also adalimumab in people with active psoriatic arthritis who had previously failed non-biologic conventional DMARDs. Now, I think the relevant background, uh, I'm sure most of you are aware that apatacitinib is a, uh, an orally bioavailable JAK inhibitor with relative selectivity for JAK1. It's already approved for the use of people with active rheumatoid arthritis. So what about its potential in psoriatic arthritis? Well, the basic design here was a parallel randomized double-blind uh, uh, administration of 15 milligrams or 30 milligrams of hepatocytinib, 40 milligrams adalimumab every other week, or placebo, uh, approximately 430 group uh, uh, patients are allocated to each group. The placebo is actually split into two arms to properly randomize against hepatocytinib and adalimumab. And the, the baseline demographics for this were pretty typical for a, a psoriatic arthritis population. 50-50 uh, split roughly for males to females, patients uh, in the order of 50 years of age. Uh, a Caucasian white uh, predominance, as is very often the case in, in such studies. And the, the body mass index high in the order of 30 as a mean, uh, reflecting the, the demographic and the uh, reality which is that cardiometabolic syndrome is pretty prevalent in people with psoriatic arthritis. Um, baseline disease activity, well again fairly typical for this kind of phase 3 population uh, in the order of 20 tender and uh, 11 swollen joints with uh, a hack in the order of 1.1, 1.2 and uh, about a half of the patients had a body surface area greater than or equal to 3% which was therefore valuable for changes in skin disease activity, and that's important uh, for, for the data that I'll, I'll talk about momentarily. So there was a hierarchical statistical analysis, which for those of you who are interested in such things, achieved its um, statistical approval right through to line nine, which was changed from baseline in fatigue score. But that meant that uh, a comparison of the ACR20 responses for superiority of uparacitinib versus adalimumab could not be formally tested. So the, the hierarchy broke at line nine. So if you go back and peruse the, the, the presentation in detail, that will, will be helpful to you in navigating the data. But for purposes of this short presentation, let me just highlight the key observations. Well, first of all, uh, the ACR responses at, at week 12, uh, the non-responder imputation demonstrated very robust improvements in ACR20, ACR50 and ACR70 for both doses of apatacitinib with superiority in fact over adalimumab for the 30 milligram dose of apatacitinib. 
So this was something in the order of 79% uh, of patients achieved an ACR20 and 50% of patients achieved an ACR50 at 12 weeks in response to 30 milligrams of adalimumab. Possibly more relevant to clinical practice given the more uh, likely use of 15 milligrams of paracetinib that 70% uh, of patients achieved an ACR20 as, uh, and 38% in ACR50. So really very robust responses and these were uh, manifest and statistically evident in as early as two weeks after the commencement of therapy and were sustained through to week 24 which is the duration of this particular report. Uh, we saw resolution of enthesitis uh, as assessed by the lead enthesitis index in 58% of patients at week 24 in the 30 milligram group and 54% uh, in the 15 milligram group as opposed to 47% of patients receiving adalimumab and when we looked at dactylitis using the LDI we had 80% of patients with resolution of dactylitis by week 24 in the 30 milligram group, 77% in the 15 milligram group and 74% in the adalimumab recipients. Now what was really interesting here was we then looked at PASI responses and uh, the, the responses here were, were rather gratifying and I think for me a bit surprising in terms of an oral uh, JAK inhibitor such that a PASI 75 was uh, elicited in 63% of patients receiving 15 milligrams of apatacitinib as opposed to 53% receiving adalimumab, 21% in the placebo group. But actually the PASI 100 rate uh, was achieved in 34% uh, of the 30 milligram group, 24% of the 15 milligram group, and 20% of those patients receiving adalimumab. So robust responses in several domains. What about those achieving minimal disease activity? Well, this was uh, achieved by 37% of patients receiving 15 milligrams of upadacitinib, 45% of patients receiving the 30 milligrams, and around a third, 33% receiving adalimumab. Uh, no surprise, therefore, that we also saw improvements in the HAC Disability Index, pain, SF36 physical component score and facet fatigue score at week 12. And these were all um, highly statistically better in the uparacitinib arms as compared with placebo. And finally, turning to the important matter of radiographic progression, uh, we saw uh, statistically significant improvement in erosion and uh, overall uh, improvement in total sharp score progression which was achieved and measured at week 24 for both doses of upadacitinib and of course for adalimumab. To balance of course the efficacy data that I've shared with you, you should be aware that the treatment emergent adverse event profile was uh, satisfactory. There were no new signals emerged in this study that were not expected from those previously performed in people with rheumatoid arthritis. So the conclusions we draw from this are that apatacitinib at 15 and 30 milligram demonstrated superior efficacy compared to placebo in treating psoriatic arthritis symptoms and signs in people refractory to non-biologic DMR therapy. Uh, in terms of the ACR20 response, at week 12, both doses achieved non-inferiority versus adalimumab, and the 30 milligram dose achieved superiority to adalimumab. And that efficacy onset was observed as early as week two. Um, and uparacitinib inhibited radiographic progression, which is very gratifying for use of a JAK inhibitor. And the, the safety profile was consistent with that that we've seen in previous uparacitinib studies. So those are, I hope, useful informations for you. Uh, paracetinib looks like a very interesting addition to the armamentarium in the treatment of people with psoriatic arthritis. And I commend this uh, study to you for your attention. 
I hope, of course, in these challenging times that this has been useful to you and that you will stay well and healthy. Thanks so much for your attention. Staying with upadacitinib in psoriatic arthritis, this time Professor McInnes analyzes the impact of upadacitinib on pain. Well, hello, my name is Ian McInnes. I'm the Muirhead Professor of Medicine and Versus Arthritis uh, Chair in Rheumatology in the University of Glasgow. Thanks so much for your interest in this poster. Uh, it's a really important topic. It's looking at how we manage pain in people with psoriatic arthritis, and in particular, it's focusing down on the utility of upadacitinib in the management of people with uh, pain as association with their psoriatic arthritis. Um, I'm happy to tell you about this on behalf of a very learned authorship, including uh, colleagues, uh, Phil Mees, uh, Kurt de Vlam, and, and others. So, the, the purpose here was to look at actually a combined analysis of the two pivotal phase three trials that have led to uh, the uh, increased understanding of the role that hepatocytinib has in the treatment of people with psoriatic arthritis. And these are called select PSA1 and select PSA2. Uh, the, the select PSA1 study was patients who had uh, an inadequate response to non-biologic DMARDs, whereas the select PSA2 was uh, patients with inadequate response to biologic DMARDs. And there was a background uh, conventional DMR allowed in these studies, uh, comparing 15 milligrams of paracitinib and 30 milligrams of paracitinib. And in slight PSA1, there was an additional adalimumab comparator arm, so uh, alongside placebo in both trials. So if you want to see the details of the study design, please look at the poster and, and direct your attention to uh, the figure one. Now, what we did for this particular post-hoc analysis was to take out uh, measures of pain appreciation and to look at how they changed over time. So we looked particularly at the patient's global assessment and we focused also on the uh, minimal clinically important difference in the patient's global assessment. Uh, we also looked at much better improvement. That's a definition of more than or equal to two point reduction and more than or equal to 33% reduction from baseline in the patient's global. Uh, we also, however, had a look at additional endpoints, including the uh, uh, short form survey SF36 question seven and the BASDI question two and BASDI question three. So these are questions specifically focused on appreciation of pain by patients. Now, if you want to look at the poster and turn your attention to figure two, you'll see here that we're um, annotating the proportion of patients uh, achieving at least 30%, 50%, 70% reduction, or the minimal clinical uh, important difference or uh, the uh, uh, much better improvement in the patient's global. And you can cast your eye across the graphs, but what you'll see is that there is a very significant improvement in those patients receiving both doses of aparacitinib. And uh, when we look at those patients in receipt of adalimumab, you can, uh, from the, the, the slight PSA1 study, you can see that if anything, there are numerically higher improvements in pain reduction in those receiving aparacitinib than adalimumab, but certainly clear differentiation from placebo. Now, if you uh, uh, look in, the, in figure three, you can see the same data, but now depicted for the select PSA2 study over 24 weeks. And I should have said for both of these, this is a non-responder imputation. And once again, you can see that both doses of aparacitinib achieve uh, significant improvements as compared with placebo, this time, remember, in a patient subpopulation who had previously failed biologic uh, disease-modifying anti-rheumatic agents. Uh, and now turning finally to figure four, you see here a depiction of the changes that occurred in BASDI question two, uh, BASDI question three, SF36, 
uh, question seven and SF36 question eight respectively. In the top panel, you're looking at the improvements in the select PSA1 study in the bottom, select PSA2. And then if you look on the right hand side, you see these changes depicted over time. And the take home from here is that there were significant improvements which were most notable for the aparacitinib groups and, and in the, uh, the, the overall analysis, we see that probably the 30 milligram group has outperformed the 15 milligram group, although both those groups outperform placebo. So the, the conclusions I would ask you to take away from, uh, from this poster are that there were greater proportions of patients with active psoriatic arthritis receiving the paracitinib as opposed to placebo. were achieving a rapid and significant and clinically meaningful uh, reduction in their pain. And, and we see, saw this across a range of evaluations. Uh, and actually, it, it looks as if uh, the uh, 30 milligram dose group uh, achieved uh, improvements in most pain assessments as early as week two. So this is a really remarkable early onset of action, and that was uh, numerically greater than the adalimumab recipients. And this does suggest that apatacitinib is going to be a useful medicine in the management of people with psoriatic arthritis. As always, we have to balance that against the safety profile for this medicine, which continues to emerge. And I think in clinical reality, it'll be the 15 milligram dose that we should be paying most attention to. So thanks very much for your attention. I hope you found that poster review interesting. And as ever, if you are interested in more detail, please go back to the poster itself for a review of the data as presented there. Thanks very much indeed. Our next presentation is from Professor Xenophon Baraliakos, who summarizes the impact of filgotinib on structural lesions in the sacroiliac joints in patients with active ankylosing spondylitis. Hello, my name is Xenophon Baraliakos. I'm a rheumatologist working in Germany with a particular interest uh, scientifically in spondyloarthritis, especially axial spondyloarthritis and imaging. And uh, the data that I am presenting or discussing with you today are data that we have presented at ACR 2020, the virtual Congress that just went over. And we tried to report on the information about whether or not there's any correlation between MRI lesions, structural lesions and the MRI of the sacroiliac joints and clinical endpoints in patients with active ankylosing spondylitis under treatment with filgotinib, a JAK inhibitor, over 12 weeks. The reason to do this study or to do this analysis was that we do know very well that there might be some correlation between clinical characteristics and MRI findings for inflammation, for bone marrow edema. However, we also know that ankylosing spondylitis is in the long term associated with um, decrease or limitation of mobility and function. And therefore, we wanted to know whether or not also the structural lesions that come after inflammation and are indeed affecting the bone, whether or not those, these correlate with the clinical endpoints of the patients that matter to us, at least from the clinical point of view. We took patients who um, participated in the Tortuga trial, Tortuga trial, um, is the trial that, it, um, that evaluated the effect of filgotinib in those patients with active ankylosing spondylitis in a phase two trial so far. We had all their clinical endpoints available that could be assessed in a randomized placebo control trial, as we know them. And we also had MRIs of the patients that we evaluated. Overall, we could include 116 patients, 58 were treated with filgotinib and 58 
were treated with placebo. For the study that I'm presenting here, we had 107 patients, more or less similar numbers, 55 and 52, with filgotinib and placebo respectively. And we had MRI scans of a large part of them. This means 87 patients were then who were then were put into the analysis. So we indeed evaluated those with clinical findings in the MRI, um, uh, full MRI sets. There was no difference between the patients who were not included in the study and those who were included in the study. So MRI was not a criterion of having maybe a different outcome or a different uh, baseline um, uh, finding. Going over to the results, we have seen that indeed inflammation that was previously reported, inflammation has decreased significantly already after 12 weeks of filgotinib treatment as compared to placebo. We've also reported that in the structural, from the structural point of view, there have been some significant changes also in those patients who have been treated with filgotinib in terms of them having less erosions over 12 weeks and more fat metaplasia, especially in the, in the, in the area of the, uh, of the joint space, um, what some people also call back, backfill. This means there has been kind of um, direction towards metaplasia of the tissue, most probably also towards new formation of tissue or even transformation into the fat, which again will later on may show some new bone formation. And when we applied all these findings, this means the correlations for or to erosion, to fat metaplasia, even to within the joint space or without or at, directly at the joint space within the bone or even ankylosis, we were not able to find any correlation between the baseline characteristics from the clinical endpoint of view and the outcome of the MRI, either when we evaluated only the baseline or the follow-up um, outcomes, which again means and brings me to the conclusion that after 12 weeks of treatment, we were able to show associations of treatment to the MRI findings, both for the inflammatory lesions, again shown earlier, but also the structural lesions. But we did not show any significant correlations between all the clinical outcomes that we know. Again, these were the obvious ones, ASTAS, BASFI, BASMI, CRP and the MRI outcomes in terms of chronic changes. We believe that we may have a first signal here that indeed the improvement or the change in function and mobility may be more associated with the treatment itself, itself and not so much with the changes, at least not on the MRI. However, of course, we also need longer term data beyond those 12 weeks to prove this theory that has been shown here as a signal and this data will be retrieved in the long-term study. Thank you very much. The final presentation is from Professor Meyerbuch, who will now present a phase 2b study evaluating the BTK inhibitor evobrutinib. So thank you for the opportunity to present uh, the, this abstract. Um, this uh, abstract reports on a phase 2b randomized double-blind study in patients with rheumatoid arthritis and an inadequate response to methotrexate evaluating the safety and efficacy of evobrutinib. Um, the the pretext or the context of this uh, study is that we all recognize the role of B-cells um, in the pathogenesis of rheumatoid. Uh, Bruton's tyrosine kinase or BTK um, is involved in the activation and proliferation of B-cells as well as actually 
uh, cells within the innate immune system and therefore presents a rational therapeutic target in the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis. Within this, Ivibrutin specifically is a highly selective oral BTK inhibitor because it has its action on both B cells and myeloid cells that I alluded to earlier and has actually been evaluated in other immune-mediated diseases. So in this study, just under 400 patients, 390 patients uh, were randomized um, to either Ivibrutinib 25 milligrams daily, 75 milligrams daily, or 50 milligrams twice daily, or placebo. And these were patients who had a diagnosis of rheumatoid for at least six months and were on a background stable dose of methotrexate for at least eight weeks. And the objectives were to evaluate the efficacy, the dose response, and the safety of ibuprofenib compared to placebo. About half the patients actually also participated in our MRI sub-study that provided um, additional secondary endpoints. The primary endpoint of the study was ACR20 uh, using high sensitivity CRP at week 12. And there were, in addition to the MRI endpoints, other clinical endpoints, disease activity score CRP, low disease activity and remission, but also safety evaluation, so adverse events and safety adverse events. So um, of, the four, of the 390 patients that were randomized, just over 90% completed 12 weeks of treatment. Um, the mean time from diagnosis was approximately six years in all the groups. And essentially the characteristics at baseline were balanced um, across all the treatment doses and placebo group for both demographics and disease characteristics as well. The top line of the um, study result is in essence that the primary endpoint wasn't met. That is, ibuprofenib was not uh, shown to demonstrate higher ACR20 response rate at week 12 compared to placebo. And if you look further in the primary um, uh, endpoint results, it's interesting, there was a, a really marked placebo response. So 50% of patients in the placebo group achieved an ACR20 response. This was much higher than was uh, expected. If we look at the secondary endpoints, um, again, there were, there were no significant differences between placebo and the ibuprofenib uh, dosage groups. There was suggestion, however, of some numerical and meaningful difference in the sense that um, DAS28 CRP uh, low disease activity at week 12 was approx approximately at 20 to 25% in the ibuprofenib treatment arms compared to 7% in the placebo arm. And there was significant uh, reduction in high sensitivity, median high sensitivity, high sensitivity CRP change uh, between uh, ibuprofenib and uh, placebo. And this was uh, nominally significant. So the other results were, as I mentioned, in relation to the uh, MRI sub-study, and interestingly, again, both placebo and ibuprofenib showed um, significant reductions. And this was looking at synovitis score, osteitis score, and erosion score. So again, the placebo also showed significant reduction. And this was in the range of about 82% um, uh, change in baseline with placebo compared to 86 to 91% in the ibuprofenib arms. Importantly, between in, in the both clinical uh, endpoints and the MRI, there was no uh, dose difference uh, noted either in the ibuprofenib arms. And then the final results were safety. So whilst there was no significant difference um, in ibuprofenib and placebo in terms of efficacy, 
there was a reassuring safety profile. There was also no difference in uh, uh, number of adverse events, no significant difference in the type in the type of reported treatment, emergent adverse events, and again, no dose effect of ibuprofenib. Um, grade three events were very infrequent. There's only one grade four event and um, minimal incidence of liver function test rise. So um, to summarize and conclude in this phase two study of ivabrutinib um, in patients with rheumatoid that had an inadequate response to methotrexate, uh, the primary efficacy endpoint of ACL20 response wasn't met um, and there were no MR differences either uh, and also with the secondary clinical endpoints. Um, this is in the context of a very high placebo response it's not clear as to the basis of this, and it's also not clear as to the basis for not seeing any clear significant benefit of fibrobrutinib when other, uh, compared to other BTK inhibitors that have also been evaluated. It was, however, safely tolerated, but in essence, the conclusion would be that whilst safe, uh, this study suggests that inhibition of BTK using ibuprofenib isn't sufficiently effective in reducing signs and symptoms over a 12-week period. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this edition of Insights at ACR 2020. Make sure to subscribe to the CSF podcast channel on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts from, so you don't miss out on our other ACR 2020 content, like our condensed daily highlights of the ACR Congress. If you found this informative, why not listen to our regular podcasts, which include author interviews and a monthly review of the latest cytokine signaling papers, hosted by the CSF chairman, Professor Ian McInnes. You can also visit cytokinesignaling.com for access to a wide range of free educational resources, including monthly slide summaries of the latest papers and accredited CME courses.